On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and we're here to talk about five of the best estate planning ideas in 2018. Okay, let's jump in. What I'm going to present today is five of the best estate planning ideas in 2018. These ideas are fluid, and they will certainly change as our understanding of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act grows greater. What I'd like to talk about is Section 199, Cap A, and Planning with Trusts, decanting to add general powers appointment, asset protection issues and why any asset protection planning has to be woven into the tax law, a little bit about estate planning for IRAs, in particular IRAs payable to trusts, and the important differences between planning in first and second marriages, and then avoiding low basis traps. When we look at this, the, one of the important things that's brand new that we all have to learn about is Section 199 Cap A. What's happening with 199 Cap A is you're allowed to take a deduction equal to 20% of qualified business income from a pass-through entity. So if you have a client, they have a small business, they earn $200,000 a year, married couple, they will get a $40,000 deduction. So basically, this provides a top effective marginal rate of 29.6%. This also applies to estates and trusts. One of the eligible sets of taxpayers would be a proprietorship or a person that owns a TIC interest in real estate or owners of an S-Corp, partnership, or LLC. Now, one of the things that happens is when your income exceeds $315,000 or $157,000 in case of an individual or a trust, then you go into a set of wage and capital tests. Simply put, your deduction is limited to the greater of 50% of your wages or 25% of your wages plus 2.5% of unadjusted basis of your property. This becomes a very complex calculation with a lot of different mathematical limitations, including how long you've been depreciating the property, what's the effect of bonus depreciation, what's the effect of 179. But what is clearly certain is if a single person's income or a trust's income is below 157, or a married couple's income is below 315,000, you will receive the full 20% small business deduction. You do not have to run the wage and capital test. That's easy. So basically, if you are below that, you're not required to run the wage and capital test. The one idea that's come forward, it's a very good idea. Non-grantor completed gift trusts and non-grantor incomplete gift trusts are going to be eligible for a $157,000 threshold exemption. That means that if you had a partnership that was earning a million and a half dollars and a trust owned 10% of it, that $150,000 of income would not be subject to the wage and capital tests, assuming there's no other income. So simply what you would do is you would transfer property to completed gift trusts or incomplete gift trusts. If that property is going to grow a lot, and it has a relatively high basis, you would lean towards a completed gift trust. If the property has a low basis, you would be inclined to transfer that property to an incomplete gift trust, a ding, a ning, a sing, a wing, where you keep both a limited intervivals power appointment, you keep that property included in your estate for estate tax purposes, but loosely it's out of your estate for income tax purposes because it's taxable on its own fiduciary tax return, has a distinct entity. So we have a client, they have 11 grandchildren and four children. Their income on this activity is about a million nine. 
And what they could do is make transfers. They could make transfers in such a way that they would be able to create 15 trusts for their children and grandchildren and move most of this income off of their income statement onto the tax returns for their children and grandchildren. It's a very smart planning idea. So that's something that you definitely want to take a look at, and that should be one of the arrows in your quiver. Now remember, when you do this, though, you do have to compete with 643F of the code, the multiple trust rule. If you only had two grandchildren, you could not create five or six trusts for them. You could create probably one trust for each of them because two or more trusts shall be treated as the same trust. And under 643F, remember, if a husband and wife create a trust, they are treated as one person. Okay, so basically create one trust per grandchild. Now let's talk a little bit about decanting with a larger exemption. Your client, Mrs. Johansson, she survived her husband who died five years ago. You funded the bypass trust and it has gone up in value by about 40 or 50% since then. And she does not have that much property herself. She has an $11 million exemption today and she has three or $4 million for the property. What you could do is decant in such a way that you would grant her a general power of appointment, but it would be contingent upon her not paying more estate tax. So it would basically be a formula general power of appointment. So you would modify the terms of a trust by distributing the trust assets to another trust. The second trust, the receiving trust, would be a brand new trust. Now you might do this in your state, or you might have to move this to another state where the decanting laws are more liberal. So again, decanting can be authorized by the terms of the original trust, by state law, or even by common law. But what your goal would be to have, the new trust would have a general power of appointment, which would include property in her estate under Section 2041, and the goal would be to obtain a step up in basis for the property in that bypass trust when she died. So this is a, a very important thing. If you're interested in this, what you do want to do is become more familiar with decanting. There's a lot out there on the Lineberg website. Uh, there's also a lot on Steve Ocean's website. Take a look at, everyone should have at their fingertips, Steve's decanting chart where he goes through on a state-by-state -state basis and basically tries to rank which states are the best. And you can look at the leading states in the recent charts have been South Dakota, Nevada, Tennessee, New Hampshire, in Delaware and Ohio. Those have been the top six. Now let's talk a little bit about asset protection planning. We now have, every one of us has $11 million of exemption, 22 million for a married couple. For most people, statistically, this is monopoly money. And that means if you represent a doctor and he or she is just scared to death of being sued, what can they do? Well, let's assume for a moment they're not in a DAP state. If they're not in a DAP state, they can certainly create a third-party trust for their spouse and their children. They do that properly under the law of that state, and there's no fraudulent conveyances. They're, they're in a position where they're totally solvent when they do this. They will be able to do that structure. So that would be a very powerful thing. Now, what you're able to do, though, is it, you may not be concerned with burning up some unified credit to do that. You can do that as a completed gift trust or an incomplete gift trust. 90% of the time we would try to do that as a completed gift trust and then the appreciation would be shifted downstream to children and grandchildren. Now there is absolutely no reason why the doctor's spouse could not be a beneficiary of this trust as long as you have broad discretionary standards when you draft the trust. So 
basically, now you can also look at, if you're in a DAP state, you can do a DAP, and with the right planning, uh, that can be a completed gift or an incomplete gift. Most of the time you do that as a completed gift. Now, the other thing we can do, again, we create these third-party trusts. That's very straightforward. You can also, you're going to be asked by the CPAs as a sidebar in the asset protection world, uh, lawyers will be asked by CPAs and clients to move properties around to get a better result under Section 199 Cap A. And that's all very powerful planning, extremely powerful. But what we can't miss is that that might have asset protection implications. So for the CPAs listening, when as we go to the whiteboard and chart how we're going to move things around to get and build all these grandiose uh, spreadsheets, what we want to do is once we get this laid out, we want to visit with the client's lawyers or special, other specialized lawyers that can help the client that will tell us under state law they don't really like creating parent subsidiary LLCs or whatever the issue is. So we definitely have to tackle that because in the past we've always tried to compartmentalize risk in real estate and 199A seems to be telling us to go back to a more consolidated organizational structure. So be very careful with that. The other thing we'll be doing is we'll be spinning out real estate out of medical practices, and that may even enhance the asset protection. But when, when you do that, the entity you're going to use, there may be cases where counsel would tell you to set up some type of LLC in a different state, so you can maybe the only remedy would be charging order protection. So those are all things we want to look at. The other asset protection issue you want to be very mindful of is Paying down debt in real estate is now a very powerful thing because if you have a million dollars in the bond market and a million dollars of debt in real estate, the interest on the bonds is being taxed at 37%. The deduction on the real estate side for that leverage is really only at 29.6%, 80% of that amount because of the 199 cap A deduction. So very important before you go paying down property, you want to make sure you have adequate insurance and you talk with the client's lawyer on, you know, does this, does from an asset protection standpoint, how concerned are you if I pay off this debt, leaving more in that entity available to my creditors? Now let's jump over to the world of IRAs. With the increase in the exemption, what's going to happen is there's going to be a general tendency to leave your IRA to your spouse, allowing he or she to roll it over 99 out of 100 times. That's the best income tax result. But that has to be weighed against the property law issues. I need to make sure, even though there's portability, I need to make sure that leaving that property to my spouse isn't going to result in that property not getting to my children. So in a second marriage, I think most everyone would see the obvious issue. In a first marriage, the issue is, does the spouse remarry? And perhaps leave some of that property to his or her new spouse. And that's an issue we have to look at. So, but you do have greater exemption, and that gives you more flexibility. Typically, if you leave an IRA to a trust, you're going to leave it to an accumulation trust, not a conduit trust. That is going to give you the best asset protection. So, couple comes in, the gentleman's dying, the wife is a physician, she's worried about malpractice risk. You would leave his IRA to a trust for her, an accumulation trust, with broad discretionary standards. So, I think. From a paradigm shift perspective, with now a $22 million exemption, we can be much more concerned with getting the property law side of this right 
than just be driven by tax issues. So and that paradigm shift means we'll be doing more income tax planning and less worrying about the estate tax. So there are three types of IRA trusts, what we'd call an accumulation trust, where the trustee can actually accumulate property in the trust. There's a conduit trust where you're required to pay out all the RMDs. And finally, there is a payout trust that when I die, if the IRA goes to the trust, it immediately gets paid out to my children. Any of those trusts will, with the right drafting will qualify as a designated beneficiary trust. That's pretty straightforward. And you can even make these trusts generation skipping if you want. You would probably only do that with an accumulation trust. You wouldn't want to waste GST exemption typically on a conduit trust if you had other choices. Okay, let's jump up to the next subject. So we talked a little bit about IRAs payable to trusts, but the next topic will be low basis traps, okay? Low basis traps, here we go. Your client, there is going to be a prejudice on all our parts, a prejudice towards action. And we're going to want to gift stuff away. And that may not be the best result for many clients. Now, we all know the exemption doubled. The higher exemption sunsets in December 2025. And we still have a basis step up. So we still have a step up in basis. So if you represent a 90-year-old lady who has a estate planning problem, she's over the $11 million, or she's at $10 million, you would like her to give away that exemption before it sunsets. That's low-hanging fruit. But realize that if she holds it when she dies, if she dies before December 31st, 2025, she will receive a full step up in basis. So in the ideal world, you would hold it, she would die before December 31st, 2025, and then you'd get that clean basis. Now, if you're worried about appreciation, in the meantime, her going from 10 million to 15 million, then maybe you drop that property into a grat, perhaps a four-year grat, and then you regrat it as it comes due. What you're trying to do is shift the appreciation downstream while still retaining the ability to get a step up in basis. Remember, property in a grant will come back into your estate, okay? So basically for somebody who is older who might die during this eight-year period of time, consider using a grant to retain the property in the estate while shifting the upside downstream because you're gonna have, you're gonna have your cake and eat it too. If you live through the term, you'll push the upside downstream to your children. If you die during the term, it all comes back into your estate and you'll receive a nice clean step up in basis. So those are some of the best ideas out there. The final sixth thing I do wanna talk about a little bit is portability. Look at when, when you're faced with a portability decision, I want us to think about if the surviving spouse lives past December 31st, 2025, he or she will only have the $5 million exemption of inflation adjusted. You're gonna to tend to give advice that favors filing for portability and not filing for portability. The most effective thing I've seen when I've sat with clients on this is I just draw a fraction. And the bottom of the fraction, I put potential savings of $4.4 million, potential cost of say $4,000. and when people look at that, they go, why are we even having this discussion? Just file the return. But what you have to do is you have to remind clients that most surviving spouses, unless they're very old, will not die during this eight-year period. And remember, to keep the exemption, 
at the $11 million mark, we are going to have to have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican White House. In our current political situation, generally, we're not going to have that everything line up where one party controls the entire government, where they can get their legislation through relatively easily. Now, even this last time around, we all saw how hard it was for Speaker Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to get legislation through. So keep in mind, look at your portability through the eyes of a lower exemption. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. It's always an honor to be here with you. Thank you very much. On behalf of Weinberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler discussing five of the best estate planning ideas in 2018. Thank you for joining us.